Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. There are not many M&A deals that get done without the help of accountants. So that's the theme of today's podcast, number eight in the series. I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio, Anthony Lobo, partner with KPMG, a member of the board of KPMG UK. I know Anthony back from one of my earlier deals when we were selling a number of shell refineries in France. And that's well over 15 years ago. Anthony, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Hughes. I first like to ask every guest what they like about M&A. And I think that the majority of your working life has been involved with deals. So the question goes for you too, Anthony. What do you like about deals? I think for me, Hughes, it's two things. One, the adrenaline buzz I got from doing every transaction. And secondly, it was around the personal connections that I made. Many of the people I worked with over the 20 years that I did deals are still my personal friends today. It talks to the fact that we're still talking today here in the studio. Let's start where we first got to work together, separating a business in this France transaction. I remember we hired you because we had to show the financials of a business we were carving out from Shell's main activities and showing how it would have performed as a separate freestanding business. So a general question to you is what's important when you're preparing a business for sale? I think the first thing to say is I remember really clearly that first time we worked together. I think you called the meeting in the basement of the building overlooking a swimming pool at five o'clock on a Friday and we had all the advisors there. That was a brilliant point in which we realised how you were building collaborative teams. But in terms of what's important, when you're selling and carving out a business, what a buyer needs to understand is what that business will look like from a standalone perspective. And if you think about it from selling a smaller business from a larger mothership, effectively you have recharges for IT, technology, pensions, HR. And our ability was to show what that trading performance of that business would look like in the past and potentially in the future. And that was the main part that we helped you with. And since we had all the advisors in the room and that included an investment bank, Can you tell a bit more about how you see the difference between what you as an accountant would offer versus an investment bank? Because both, of course, are financial advisors. I think that's a good question, Hoos. And if you think back to that period, the role that the investment bank played was that the buyer universe was changing quite significantly. So quite often a corporate wouldn't need an investment bank, but they did because you had a new entrance. You had private equity buyers, you had oil traders. You had trade buyers and you had individuals. And the ability of the investment bank to look at that landscape and understand it and help you through that negotiation was a role they played. Now, from our perspective, what we were there to do was to very much support and make the buyer understand both the financial track record, but the ability to separate that business cleanly and how that separation would work. So going back to what we discussed, how would the IT and technology services be provided over what length of time and what would be the cost? How would the capex be spread across that three-year period? So the ability to actually show what the trading performance and the working capital requirements were for that business was where we played a really critical role in giving you both a blueprint for the future and a track record of the historical performance. And I remember you also helped us actually understand the business ourselves, so to perform the due diligence required. And I think that's the interesting element of when we interacted is that quite often when you're carving out business, that business has never existed in that form before. And therefore, no one really fully understands what that looks like. And so the ability to show you what that business looked like and the perimeter around it 
was also the key part of what we helped you with. Yes, I remember that when we would go through due diligence findings, we would structurally divide them into three buckets, treat, take, or transfer. And the buckets were as follows. The treat bucket means finding the problem that you see is going to be fixed before we sell it. So we treat it. The take one, we say, okay, well, that's something that as a buyer will have to just swallow. Maybe it will impact our valuation. We can't do anything. We'll just have to live with it. And the transfer one is a due diligence finding where you say, okay, but that's a risk that the buyer clearly has to take and they will have to swallow it and we'll make sure that contractually it will transfer. So that's how we dealt with these findings. And who's, from my perspective, that was always excellent because you were always really clear about those three buckets that you wanted to put findings into. So it helped us as advisors help you in terms of identify which of the three buckets items would be in. So Anthony, back to preparing for a sale. Today, I think you would categorize your activities as uh, either a vendor assist due diligence or a vendor due diligence. And can you explain a bit about the difference between the two and which one is best for which circumstances? So on vendor assist, which is quite often the case of what we helped you with, we're working for the seller in preparing the track record of the financial performance. And our duty of care is with the seller. Under a vendor due diligence, we effectively are preparing that track record, but we have a duty of care to the buyer. And that's the key distinction. Now, in terms of what we helped you with, given the time compression, you were always really key and clear with us that what you wanted was to do it as quickly as possible. So we did vendor assist and we prepared the historical track record and we prepared a separation blueprint, which showed you how you would separate the business. And that's the distinction between the vendor assist acting for the seller and vendor due diligence where there's a duty of care to the buyer. And interestingly, I think now if I would want to go quickly, I'd be interested in a vendor due diligence because it allows the deal to go, the negotiations to go much faster because a buyer doesn't have to spend all this time going through due diligence in the negotiation process. So there's always that benefit and trade-off that you have between the vendor due diligence, which does take longer but it gives the duty of care and it means that the buyers then will only do top-up due diligence for the areas that they care about. But if you recall when we did the vendor assist, we also, in the background, did carve-out accounts because we recognised that the buyer universe that you were looking at was quite varied. So when it was just a trade-to-trade buyer, there's quite often the vendor assist would be sufficient. But in the case that you had, where you had multiple buyers with different needs, Some of those buyers, it may have been a capital markets transaction or a class one transaction, and they would be required to do a circular and have a three-year trading performance. So the vendor assist was also combined with doing carve-out accounts, which gave us more flexibility for the different buyers that we had. And that was what was the key determinant at the time. Speed to get the financial track record out and have the discussion with buyers. Carve-out accounts to give us flexibility with the buyer universe. Excellent. Well, let me summarize where we are in this part of the conversation. So you would use an accountant to help you if you're selling to provide a reliable set of financial data that helps a buyer to easily value a business. And of course, you take your due diligence findings and can use the buckets of take, treat or transfer. And then if you want to help a buyer further, a vendor due diligence can give you a step 
better information and then a speedier process towards the end versus a vendor assist. Let's take a short break and hear from our sponsor, Pilco. Pilco and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, go to pilco.com. We're back again in the M&A podcast with guest Anthony Lobo from KPMG. Let's have a conversation now about closing mechanisms. There's usually a lot of time between signing and completion of a deal, the closing of the deal. And even though we hear about deals all the time when they are signed, the period afterwards, and in the previous edition of the podcast, we talked about regulatory approval. Very often that's a reason for lengthy periods between signing and completion. There's a lot of financial risk because the business continues to evolve. How are these risks agreed to be shared between buyer and seller in various closing mechanisms, Anthony? I think you can tell us lots about that. Yeah. So this is the area that I think I always really loved. And I think you and I had many conversations around the optionality here. So there's two basic mechanisms. One is effectively where you have a locked box. So the buyer effectively takes the economic value of the business from signing through to completion. And when you have long periods between signing and completion, that's generally what financial buyers will look towards. And I'll come back to that in a moment. The other mechanism, which was quite often the traditional mechanism, was effectively you set a target level of net debt and a target level of working capital. And then effectively there is a true up on completion. So if the level of net debt is higher or lower, there's an adjustment and the level of net debt or working capital is higher or lower, there's an adjustment there. Now, what we started to see increasingly during the period when we worked together, Hoos, was that shift towards locked boxes because we saw more financial buyers come in. They wanted to take the economic value from signing. And so a locked box effectively says between signing and closing, effectively the profit that's made in that period and the cash that's generated goes to the buyer. But in the instances that we worked on where there are carve-outs, that's quite complicated because the business doesn't yet exist. So you're creating the financial track record of that business at signing and you're recreating it at closing. And that gives a whole host of negotiation, dispute, arbitration areas. And so we spend a lot of time on that after signing, working out to make sure the clarity on that mechanism was understood and where the value leakage or accretion was. And I also remember that it's quite usual with these mechanisms, actually in both cases, that lengthy uh, negotiations are done post-completion on the various points that are disputed. And I think that was the learning that we took from a lot of the transactions that we saw, that effectively the deal team quite often would roll off after the signing and think the transaction's done from the corporate seller side. But effectively, for a lot of the financial buyers, they looked at that period of negotiation in order to gain value. And they spent a lot of time around understanding that mechanism and making sure it worked in their advantage. And so 
I think in the period we worked together, we saw a lot more focus from you and your teams on that mechanism and how it was actually going to be implemented at the end. Yeah, we realize it's part of their business model. So, Anthony, what are the top mistakes that you see being made by buyers and sellers? So, from my perspective, I think I would put them into three main buckets. One, tax. Taxation is always something that's never looked at closely enough, and it often ends up being a valuation adjustment later on. In the instances we have, even though we are creating the business, there will be legal entities within that. And within those legal entities, there'll be tax losses and making sure those are identified, understood, and the sale structure is clearly understood is important. The second one I would look at is environmental, was always in the transactions downstream businesses we looked at, a key valuation area. And then the third one, I think, was something that we looked at a lot more closely as we evolved when we worked with you, Hoos, was around where is the underlying value in the business you're selling? So quite often we were selling downstream assets, i.e. refineries and petrol stations. And in that instance, there was quite often a property portfolio within the perimeter of the transaction. And I think it was really important for the seller to understand what was the valuation of that property portfolio, because from a buyer perspective, they could look at a lot of optionality around that property, either finance, sale and lease back, in order to create equity or values on day one. So it was the hidden areas of value within the transaction that was really important and was not always understood from a seller perspective when it was done quickly. Yes, and if you have, for example, a perimeter of your business that's defined by a legal structure, that legal entity may have things in it that you haven't really studied so well, but might provide opportunities for a buyer. Absolutely. And I think we saw that play out on many of the transactions we worked on. So these days, we see more deals getting into innovation, innovation around energy transition in our sector. Uh, that's the way many businesses are going. And the trend, of course, is the larger companies buy up the smaller entrepreneurial ones. And that way, they can continue to grow and evolve. Now, how are these situations different? And what would your advice be accordingly in those situations where the entrepreneur is selling their business? So I think my experience would be around a few areas. One, the culture is quite often different between the larger organizations that are acquiring these much more entrepreneurial, agile organizations. And that ability to integrate that culture into the larger organization is critical. The second area, I think, is around that intellectual property. Where does that intellectual property sit? Is it in a small group of people? Is it in technology? Understanding where that intellectual property is and how to take and extract the value from it. And I think that the third one is around how do you actually integrate that business? So do you leave it as a standalone in order to let it continue to innovate and continually improve? Or do you integrate it rapidly into your business and try and extract the value by letting it grow within your existing organization. Those are the three areas that I think I commonly see with buying more innovative, smaller businesses. And as an accountant, you'll be looking at financials because sometimes we've also come across businesses that were so much focused on wanting to sell that the focus was on getting those numbers right rather than having a long-term viable business. And I think that we've all been in transactions where we've seen this hockey stick of revenue projections, which never has transpired. So I think the key is around understanding the market in which that business operates 
and how realistic those projections are. And management always have an over-optimistic view in many of the transactions we worked on. Okay, so I'll summarize again. It's really important to uh, negotiate a closing mechanism that works well for your situation and then to manage it well afterwards too. We talked about top risk areas around tax environmental uh, liabilities and I like these common mistakes. I think for people who get involved in deals from a distance, they're also the right areas to ask questions about to find out if a deal team is really on top of what they're doing. And lastly, on dealing with entrepreneurs, look out for the hockey sticks, think about the cultural fit, and also think about how you're going to integrate the business, yes or no. Anthony, time went way too quickly for us to catch up on the full 20 years, but I really appreciate you being in the studio today. And Hoos, thank you very much. It was great to relive some of those memories of many happy experiences. So thank you, really appreciated it. My thanks to Anthony for joining us on today's episode of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. There's good news as two more episodes will follow in this series. In the next episode, number nine, we'll cover due diligence. And in episode 10, the last one, we'll go full circle and hear from a practitioner of that most successful M&A strategy of serial acquisition. We'll have as the guest, Donald Murphy, the CEO of DCC, a FTSE 100 company, which in my view is a great example of following a serial acquisition strategy. Don't forget, you can still listen to all the podcasts we've made so far. We took quite a journey through the world of M&A, and after introducing the podcast, we covered M&A strategy, where Jeff Ferdinicki from McKinsey introduced us to this concept of serial acquisition, and we covered the role of investment banks with Julian Milchrist of Bank of America. We had an episode on negotiation with Javed Ahmed, who was formerly with Vitol, and I could talk about a few of my hobby horses, such as keeping track of value through the life of your deal, when I was interviewed by Heather West. We had a whirlwind tour on valuation with Kevin Kaiser from Wharton Business School. And in the previous episode, we discussed merger regulations with Oliver Bretz from Euclid. The M&A profession covers so many disciplines that I think there may be space for another season. But before deciding whether to go there, I would like to hear from you. What worked for you in these podcasts? And what would you like to hear about in the next season? Tell us via the website of our sponsor at pilco.com or leave a comment on my LinkedIn post. Thank you for listening.